Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Close Readings podcast. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and uh, today it's my great pleasure to have Anthony Reed on the podcast. Um, and uh, the poem that Anthony has chosen for us to talk about today is a poem by uh, June Jordan, um, and the poem is called In Memoriam, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and I, I think we'll, we'll have uh, some thoughts in a moment about the question of making that choice, choosing that poem for um, release on this day. But let me tell you a little bit about um, our guest first. Anthony Reed is a professor of English and the Norman L. and Rosalie J. Goldberg Professor of Fine Arts at Vanderbilt University, where he works on the intersections of contemporary Black poetry and media, aesthetics, and politics in the 20th and 21st centuries. He's the author of two monographs. So his first book, Freedom Time, the Poetics and Politics of Black Experimental Writing, which came out from Johns Hopkins University Press in 2014, won the William Sanders Scarborough Prize from the MLA for an outstanding scholarly study of Black American literature or culture. And I just have to say, I can see why it did. And it's, it's, a, it's a truly great book, and it's been important to me in my own work. Um, more recently, Anthony published his second monograph, a book called Sound Works, Race, Sound, and Poetry in Production. Uh, that book was published by Duke University Press in 2021, and, it, and it's concerned with poetry and music in the Black Arts era. Um, even more recently than that, with his colleague Vera Kuczynski at Vanderbilt, Anthony has edited the volume Langston Hughes in Context, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. And for anyone interested in Hughes, that book will be um, an invaluable resource, um, I'm sure. Um, Anthony um, also tells me that he has two other books underway, I believe. So one on uh, Black Lyric Theory, and maybe we can come back at some point in this episode to talk about what um, lyric theory is and what Black Lyric Theory uh, might be, um, and the other on Black effective solidarities and dissonances across the diaspora. These both sound like fascinating projects to me, and um, the, the poetry studies world uh, will be um, very eager to receive them. So I, uh, I first became immersed in Anthony's work several years ago when I was working on an article of my own, which was about the role whiteness had played in the formation of lyric subjectivity and about how Claudia Rankin, um, a black poet, negotiated that history. Um, the, the essay of Anthony's that I'd found, which was published at, at just the moment when I needed to read it, is called The Erotics of Mourning in Recent Black Experimental Poetry. And he published it in, the black, in a journal called The Black Scholar. And it's just a marvelous essay. Um, my copy of it is, um, you know, I, I printed out a PDF as soon as I found it and then proceeded to underline just about every sentence in it. Um, it was so full of um, gems. Um, here's one sentence near um, from that essay, from near, near the conclusion of the essay, which I think gets at some of um, what the essay is concerned with. So this is Anthony, quote, to ask what lies beyond the lyric is thus also to ask what political possibilities are there beyond or other than citizenship. Um, um, and, and, you know, I take that line as emblematic of Anthony's way of putting together an interest in poetry and poetics with um, the kinds of social and political commitments um, and forms of affiliation that people have well outside of the purview of poetry, or at least what most people would think of as the purview of poetry. Um, I'll put links to, um, to all of Anthony's, um, all of the things that I've mentioned in the show notes. Remember also that you can find um, the text of the poem, uh, of the June Jordan poem that we'll be talking about today in the show notes for people who want to look um, at a text as we talk about it today. Um, but with that, I, I want to welcome you, Anthony, to Close Readings. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and thank you for that 
lovely introduction and of course for your work which i continue to engage in and learn from well that's very kind of you to say it's my pleasure of course to have you here um, you know, sort of peek behind the curtain f- for a moment. You were someone um, who, when I conceived of this podcast, I, I knew I'd want to have on. And um, so I sent out an email to you. And then as, um, as I thought about how the dates were lining up, it occurred to me that um, it just so happened that our episode would be released, if I followed something like the calendar that I was on, would be released on MLK Day. And I had a moment of pause at that point where I thought, oh, I don't want anyone to think, I certainly didn't want Anthony to think that I was um, making a a move that was sort of reducing uh, the interest in in our conversation, tagging it to a particular occasion or something like that. And so I wrote to you and I said, you know, you tell me, would you like to proceed on that calendar or would you like to make a change? And um, and, and I guess I just wonder before even we get started today, what thoughts, if any, you have about the idea that a poem might be occasional in the sense that it might be prompted by an occasion, like a particular event or moment in time, or in the sense that a poem might be something that one wants to read or think about on an occasion and maybe even on an occasion that recurs like an annual holiday or something like that. So what thoughts do you have, Anthony, about the idea of poetry as occasional or, or what, what was it that prompted you to say, you know what, let's lean into the MLK Day connection and, and, and talk about this poem on that day? Well, it seemed fortuitous to me. Um, I suppose I'm one of those people who thinks there are no accidents. And so that alignment spoke to me and said, we should embrace this and we should use it as an occasion for something like counter-programming. Where where I'm coming from is my childhood recollections of MLK Day, and indeed my recollections as as an adult, very often people will play excerpts, carefully curated excerpts from the I Have a Dream speech Maybe they'll play a little bit of the Mm -hmm. I've been to the top of the mountaintop speech. Mm -hmm. They'll say we should notice the contents of our character and not the color of our skins. And and that'll be it, which is such a disservice to the person and the complexity of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life that Mm -hmm. it seems good to lean into that occasion. It also happens, and not surprisingly, that there are many, many poems from the Black Arts era and after that are composed in um, in response to his death. Both poems like this one or poems by people like Nikki Giovanni published almost right afterwards and in the full kind of feeling of that moment. And then those, what one of the poems that I wanted to talk about that's just a little too long for a podcast is Sonia Sanchez's Um, reflection about 20 years on, thinking about and what has happened in the time since. Right. Maybe more generally, writing on occasion is one of the things poetry has most often done historically, certainly poetry in English, so that for every I don't know if one goes back to the Canterbury Tales to speak way out of my expertise. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that any of those are in fact occasional, though they may have been occasioned by real events, but all around the, the tradition in English are people inspired by things that they've observed, things that just happened, um, ongoing wars and fights, people leaving and coming back. The first surviving African-American poem is by a poet named Lucy Terry called Bar's Fight. And it must have been composed in, I want to say, the 18th century, like before the U.S. was the U.S., but it's not printed until the Mm -hmm. early 19th century, which means people preserved this poem. They preserved it. They memorized it. They recited it to each other. And it's a poem of, of... of commemoration. It commemorates 
Curiously, it commemorates um, white settlers being killed by Native Americans and includes this lines um, championing those, the names of whom I'll not leave out. And then Lucy mm. Terry proceeds to recite these um, dead settlers. So in that way, thinking about the African-American tradition, um, African-Americans specifically in the United States, that's really where the tradition begins. Or so I would argue. With, with the idea that a, that a poem might be an appropriate or interesting response to an occasion, a way of making something meaningful um, or of commemorating or of thinking critically about even. Yeah. Um, I, um, I wanted to be um, straight on uh, the, the dates here. And so before uh, we recorded, I reminded myself of when um, June Jordan, the, the poet that we'll be talking about in a moment was was born relative to the events of King's life. So for people who don't know June Jordan's work well, she was born in 1936, which means she would have been, well, for one thing, about seven years younger than Martin Luther King. And she would have been 32 when King was assassinated in 1968. Um, the poem that Anthony's chosen for us to think about today um, I think was written shortly after the assassination. And as it happens, we have the good fortune to have a recording of Jordan reading the poem aloud herself. So um, as always on this podcast, I like for us to hear the poem in its entirety early in the episode. And now is the moment for that. So we'll hear June Jordan read the poem out loud, and then I'll invite Anthony to share some thoughts about what we've just heard. This poem is In the Memory of Martin Luther King, Jr. Honey, people, murder, mercy, USA, the milk lantern to monsters, teach to kill, to violate, pull down, destroy the weekly freedom growing fruit from being born, America. Tomorrow, yesterday, rip, rape, exacerbate, despoil, disfigure, crazy, running threat, the deadly thrall, appall, belief, dispel the wildlife, burn the breast, the onward tongue, the outward hand, deform the normal, rainy, riot, sunshine, shelter, wreck of darkness, derogate, delimit, blank, explode, deprive, assassinate, and batten up like bullets, fatten up the raving greed, reactivate a springtime terrorizing, Death by men, by more than you or I can stop. They sleep who know a regulated place, or pulse, or tide, or changing sky, according to some universal stage direction, obvious like shore-washed shells. We share an afternoon of mourning, in between no next predictable, except for wild reversal, hearse rehearsal, bleach the black long lunging ritual of fright, insanity, and more deplorable abortion, more and more. So that was June Jordan reading In Memoriam, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Anthony, when, when I listen to Jordan's reading, I'm struck, first of all, by the sense of rhythm in the poem. And I know that rhythm uh, was a, an idea from a kind of technical point of view or poetics point of view that Jordan was quite interested in herself. Um, I want to just invite you to begin this conversation by sharing your thoughts about what rhythm means in a poem like this, or what you notice yourself as you were listening along to Jordan reading just now about the poem from a rhythmical point of view? I think the first thing that's really striking hearing her read it, and thank you for finding and bringing that recording to my attention. I hadn't heard it before. She reads in a monotone. Mm. Like it's very much a performance of her performance mirrors something that the poem does. She gets herself out of the way in order to just present the poem, it seems. 
And from there, the momentum of the words that she's aligned almost montagically really comes forward. So to rhythm, I would say that there's both an a an audible rhythm that we hear that things like alliteration underscore, but also thinking about the poem in terms of images, those verbal constellations that are meant to awaken our imaginations, there's something like a, an editing rhythm as one might find in film, a, a mm. series of images there juxtaposed next to one another that encourage new thought, new thought associations. For Jordan herself, I mean, I think that for poets of her generation, the rhythm became an alternative to meter. Mm. Meter is a grid that writers and critics use to organize lines, taking the fact that English is a strong stress language as its basis, and then figuring out how to arrange that intentionally, something that happens, as it were, naturally, then mm -hmm. becomes intentionally arranged in order to create um, an idea of order on the page. Right. It's, as you know, as many of our listeners will know, there's long been kind of challenges to that should be used. Um, meter, is meter natural? Is English naturally iambic? Parenthesis, no, there are no iams in English. <laughs> Close parenthesis. Um, but the way that people from Wordsworth um, appropriating ballad meter through Hopkins and sprung verse they've used meter to try to get at something like speech. Right. Um, for the Black Arts era, and I, which I'm, for one, not going to link to Whitman, although one could, hmm. the meter proved to be too restrictive. It was actually too artificial to impose upon poems, and the idea was to try to get to something like the demotic force, the demotic energy, um, demotic with a T. Mm -hmm. Um, and to have that be the organizing energy of the poem. And I think you hear that really clearly. You see it on the page and you hear it when Jordan reads. The places where she slows down are logical in my reading of the poem, at least on the page. Hmm. Maybe we can revisit some of those moments um, in, in just a moment um, here. Um, think about why she slows down, where she does, what that, what those moments correspond to in terms of, well, what you just referred to as a kind of logical sense and what some people might think about as the argument of the poem or the ideas being developed by the poem. I'd be very interested in hearing you talk about that. I know that Jordan has, um, is on the record as being interested in something she calls vertical rhythm, which I take it is, um, or as I think I understand it anyway, is related to something you were just discussing. So vertical as opposed to the horizontal kind of rhythm that you might get in a line of, say, iambic pentameter, which would go something like ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump. And then with all the kind of interesting variations on that one can get, that's horizontal, I guess, in the sense that it goes left to right across the page, follows the line of poetry. So what did, what did Jordan mean by vertical rhythm? And how is that? Can you relate that to um, some of the history that you were just giving us about um, the Black Arts Movement and its interest in demotic um, sort of rhythms? Um, I'll try. The yeah. demotic or the vernacular, the wanting to get to the language that people use, I think I want to say first is, and this relates to the question of occasion, whatever else the Black Arts Movement was, it was a reaffirmation of the idea that poetry is something that happens with and among and for people. It's something that happens in communities. Mm -hmm. And it was an attempt by people self-consciously, by Black writers self-consciously to unlearn some of the standards of beauty, of order, of structure that they had been learned because they felt 
with reason that those external standards were made it hard for them to know how to appreciate the culture of their parents, of their grandparents, of their uncles and aunts. Mm. And so that rather than there are people like Wendelin Brooks who could brilliantly just invent within that received um, those received structures, there is only really one Gwendolyn Brooks. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's Gwendolyn Brooks, it's Derek Walcott of Black writers, Walcott being the St. Lucian poet and playwright, who are able to figure out how to turn meter to do what otherwise it seems impossible mm-hmm. for most of us. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of simpletons like myself, I, I cannot at all. Um, and I always marvel at them. For others, it was like, well, there are other ways of organizing material. And so right. in a conversation with Ginsburg, with Allen Ginsburg, mm-hmm. I think the um, meter is one way that rhythm could be horizontal. I think that the other would be uh, the breath-based poetics mm-hmm. of people like Ginsburg or like Charles Olson, this idea that the line is fit to the bio, so the breathing a living body, mm-hmm. that Jordan wanted to do something different. I'm just going to quote her a little bit selectively. Yeah, please. Um, and what she describes is, uh, she's, she writes or says and is transcribed, whenever anybody, particularly myself, got into a particular kind of momentum in a poem that seemed to me pretty, a pretty good bet that you wouldn't lose your audience. And I started to think about this a bit and concentrate, and I self-consciously finally identified what it was. And it was what I call vertical rhythm, which is what I referred to before. This is a long conversation yeah. in Ginsburg's classroom. And the first poem, and she, she trails off, and um, she talks about the first poem that she applied this to um, that helped her to come up with the um, concept and my hunch we were talking earlier is that this mm-hmm. poem might well have been that poem. Right. I'm going to quote her a little bit more. And what I really meant was not about jumping from one image to another, but rather a rhythmical momentum that the spar, the structure of the poem, the spinal structure of the poem is rhythm, rhythmical. And so you choose your words and go on so that if the reader of the poem as well as the listeners to the poem are both compelled from one line to the next, they have to keep going at a certain pace. Hmm. It's remarkable that it's shifting the locus of poetic invention from the verbal image to the the actual, what the words do as words. It's Mm -hmm. finding a new way of drawing out those features of words that are there, we need them in order to speak this language at all. And poetry has a way of turning those into things that we notice and then can think with. Huh. Um, as relates to the larger project, what's interesting about Jordan in this poem is if the rhythm is related to the speech of, let's just say, ordinary people, for want of a better term, Mm-hmm. The vocabulary is very much not. The vocabulary is very much what somebody like William Wordsworth would have stigmatized as a poetic vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of words like derogate. Mm-hmm. Um, That's not what Wordsworth would have called a man speaking to men, right? That, uh, <laughs> it's not the language yeah. of, of rustic men yeah, you right. know, plowing the field and then like mm-hmm. speaking and what Wordsworth would turn into mm-hmm. a poem. So, you know, exacerbate. These are not words that are commonly used. Mm-hmm. And yet, in context, they, they work. They don't mm-hmm. stand out, at least to my ear, as especially... It's not like reading a Stevens poem or something where I feel I need to reach for my dictionary um, in order to really grasp everything that's that's going on. There's something that the rhythm, the rhythm of it alone. I'm going to lean into this harder than I really should, but it's almost as though the rhythm, the propulsion of the poem tells you what you need to know about what those words mean. Right. Even if you're not sure of the dictionary definition. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that sense, I mean, 
sorry, what, what comes to mind for me is is probably a terrible example because it's it's the opposite of so much of other things we've been talking about here. So I hope this isn't confusing. But I've always loved this this idea that Robert Frost, of all people, explains uh, where he refers to something called the sentence sound, right? And he's and and as he explains the sentence sound, he says that he says that what he has in mind is um, the sound of sense without the words. And and what and the the example that he gives um, for where one can get this, and that always works so well when I explain this to students, I think is that, you know, imagine you're listening to someone speaking, but you're listening to them through a closed door. And you can't quite hear what the, what words they're saying, but you still have, if, if you're a native speaker of the language, maybe, or if you're sort of um, part of the same culture as, that, as the speaker is in, that you have some intuitive sense of what's going on, right? You, you sort of get the sense of it, you, you know, Oh, that's a parent talking to a child, and the parent is angry with the child about something. Or you know, that's um, you know, two lovers um, talking to each other. Something, right? That you get, you get this kind of intuitive sense that has to do not with the semantic content of each word, but with the rhythmical arrangement of words. Now, for Frost, the crucial kind of unit that he seemed to be interested in was the sentence right? The, the kind of grammatical sentence. And in Frost poetry, so often he's interested in sort of putting the organizing principle of sentences into a kind of dramatic tension with the demands of traditional accentual syllabic iambic pentameter, let's say, right? And so he liked to get those into a kind of uneasy relation with each other. Uh, in Jordan's case, in the case of this poem, this isn't a poem that seems to me in any clear or obvious sense to be organized around the sentence. And it's, it's, it's also surely not, as you've noted, um, with maybe an, uh, some interesting exceptions that we can come to, a poem where we really hear anything like accentual syllabic verse. So this is my long way around of asking you the following question, Anthony. Um, how what are the organizing principles of of this language and and by that i mean to put it in maybe simpler terms is okay when i'm speaking a sentence i know that whatever word comes out of my mouth next the point of these words is to get to the full stop at the end of the sentence there i just did it right and and so that's what's motivating the production of speech here that's how i intuitively i guess know to produce one word after another what is it that gets Jordan in a poem like this from one word to the next, if not the sentence? That's, that's a great question. You ha and I'm resisting to the urge to recite Frost <laughs> for contrast because well, I, I won't resist. Uh, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He'll not mind me stopping here to watch these woods fill up with snow. Mm -hmm. Frost, he tricks you into thinking it's not really a sentence because the rhyme draws your ear. Mm -hmm. um, and the content is, there's, there's a kind of order to it. It begins and ends. He will not mind me stopping here to watch these woods fill up with snow. Um, Jordan gives us something that's, I think appropriately less orderly. Mm -hmm. There's it's it recreates something like the experience of shock, of being shocked by something that's just happened, and yeah. of trying scrambling to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. I think the very process of making sense is what organizes these words. So just looking at the first. The first stanza. Yeah, let's I'll get an read. example uh, in front of us. Okay, go ahead. Honey, people, murder, mercy, USA, the milkland, turn to monsters, teach to kill, to violate, pull down, destroy the weekly freedom, growing fruit from being born, America. Mm -hmm. What I hear is um, first that word honey 
is my first assumption hearing that using your the frost example of hearing things through a door honey is so commonly used among working class women and among african american women this is a term term of address and men um for younger people for strangers that you want to show some care or affection to Mm-hmm. So we immediately start with this kind of disjuncture because this is not a poem that's about showing anyone tenderness, mercy, or welcoming them, welcoming them. even if it's, in the, as in the case of the waitress, welcoming them so that they can hurry up and get out. Honey, are you finished? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Right. But so the idea is that with the first word of the poem, honey, might make you think that you're being, as a reader, tenderly addressed or that the or that the poet is tenderly addressing, I don't know, given the title of the poem, maybe Martin Luther King Jr., that she's calling him honey. But but then that's not what happens as we get it's, to the second and third and fourth and so on words of the poem. So what I would say, exactly, that's exactly so. What happens instead is two things, and we're being asked on the page to read in multiple registers with attention to words across different lines. So the first word, honey, of the first line anticipates the second word of the second line, milkland, which then becomes, we can recompose into the land of milk and honey, biblical Mm -hmm. Goshen, which many people thought that the United States would be. Um, But because there's no punctuation, we're still able to say, I want a comma of address after honey. And it's not addressing King. It's telling it's telling whoever honey is, people murder. There's an interjection, mercy, USA. Mm. This kind of pause to both the, the idiomatic, the vernacular, Lord have mercy. When something mm-hmm. as terrible has happened, mercy, USA. It's this, this kind of, look at this. It is exactly what we already thought it was. Mm-hmm. So then the milkland following the USA is ironic. It's overturning like USA, the milkland, which is of course not the land of milk and honey. It's something else. People murder, people turn to monsters, people teach to kill. I'm just going down the poem and saying that there's a kind of logic here of um, solepsis. Probably Mm -hmm. I should say it's zoigma, the thing where you yoke Mm -hmm. different verbs to one noun. So the controlling Mm -hmm. noun, I think, if we accept that honey is the person being addressed and not grammatically working, then people do all of these things. People murder, people turn to monsters, people teach to kill, teach to violate, teach to pull down, teach to destroy. Mm-hmm. Um, what do they teach to destroy? The weekly, and with an A, the weekly freedom growing fruit from being born. There's a, there's a something is off there. It's, yeah. It creates, again, the, a, a sense of heightened emotion. Teach to destroy the weekly, weekly freedom growing fruit from being born, to kill right. it before it's born. Right. This, if it is, if this poem is from '68, it's too early to. It, it anticipates Bob Marley's um, "I Shot the Sheriff." Every okay. time I plant a seed, he says, "Kill it before it grows." Yeah. Um, and then yeah. we land on this. This all turns out to be a kind of definition: America. Uh, so that's what's happening here. Oh, one way to take what's happening here. I don't want to reduce it just to that. Right. <laughs> that we're getting a kind of definition of America that is delivered in a kind of surprising and shocking way, maybe, but also um, tied to the occasion of King's murder. Um, Now, I'm sensitive to what you said at the outset of our conversation of not reducing King to certain of his most well-known sound bites and so on, as so often happens on the day. And I'm also conscious of the fact that I'm talking to someone whose first book is called Freedom Time, right? For whom the word freedom is important in thinking about poetry. I found a quotation from Jordan um, that um, I found quite moving and that, well, let me read it and and ask you just to think a little bit with us about um, what, what, the idea of freedom or being free might have meant to Jordan in the context of this poem 
or as she thought about Martin Luther King, of course, who in his most famous speech sort of ends on that note, sort of thinking about, um, you know, free at last, free at last. Um, Okay, so here's what Jordan says, quote, I think that I am trying to keep myself free, that I am trying to become responsive and responsible to every aspect of my human being. I think that I am trying to keep myself free, that I am trying to become responsive and responsible to every aspect of my human being. So what would it, um, the weekly freedom growing fruit, right? Um, what does, this is a big question, I guess, as I'm asking it, what does freedom mean in the context of this poem or to the poet speaking these lines, Anthony? I think if I straighten out, in scare quotes, straighten out the syntax, mm. there's a couple of things are being happen are happening. So when I say that, and that would be to say, um, destroy the um, weekly growing fruit colon or something, freedom, or mm-hmm. m-freedom, m-from being born. That That is the, the people kill and destroy in order to prevent freedom. And so mm-hmm. it's overturning one of our cherished national myths as citizens of the United States, which is that this is the land of freedom. And it's drawing our attention to ask, and as in that sense of freedom that you you just gave to us from Jordan to be as something that you have to be responsive to and responsible to. And what are you responsive and responsible to? Your whole human being. Mm-hmm. Just in the context of the pandemic, um, which is, I mean, it's happening now. There's a way that freedom became reduced to, I'll do what I want. No one can tell me what to do. Is that being responsive and responsible to a whole human being? Or is it kind of artificially cordoning off one part of my human activity from other things that I might be responsive and responsible to? including fundamentally my relationship to other people. Yeah. So I think in this poem, um, if, again, we assume that the first word honey is, is a word of address and that somebody is being given a warning, mm-hmm. they're being, they're, it's like a, an older person, an elder, or just somebody who's more knowledgeable than the other saying, this is what happens here. Then mm-hmm. it's saying the freedom that we really care about will be destroyed. And that act of destruction will then be called freedom. That even the thing they call freedom, we don't have because people destroy it. And substantive, true freedom will not be allowed to grow. Yeah. So, um, and then in with, within the context of the poem, and I guess by that, I mean, in this case, like imagining Jordan reading the poem as we just heard her do or any reader who takes on the words and says them to themselves aloud or even silently, but as though aloud, um, keeping in mind what you were saying earlier about Jordan wanting or, or feeling um, constrained and not in a productive or interesting way by traditional English meter. You know, we talk about free verse, quote unquote. Is there, is there freedom to be had in the poem? In other words, um, is, is the speaker of the poem experiencing freedom in the sense of being responsive and responsible to every aspect? of their human being. I think only in that final stanza. In the very final stanza of the poem. Yeah. The final stanza of the poem. Yeah. Is there, I think a hint of something like the freedom. If I'm right, if I understand Jordan correctly and being responsive and responsible to my whole human being, is something that, like poetry, happens with and among others. Oh, yeah. Then that line, we share an afternoon of mourning in between 
no next predictable. <laughs> that moment of both mourning and of possibility where what happens next is unknown is a moment where freedom can again be imagined, thought, conceived after King. And it brings us all the way back in a way to an occasion being the organizing thing that sort of organizes that collectivity, which you might, you know, some might think a collectivity feels threatening to one's capacity for freedom. But in your view, sort of um, describing what you take to be Jordan's view, it's only in collectivities that one can experience freedom. Uh, before we get to the end of the poem, Anthony, I want to um, ask you to help me think about just the um, the structure of the poem from a slightly more elevated position of, than like a line by line um, exegesis. So, so I noticed, and I think I've got this right, I hope I've got it right, um, that when Jordan read the poem, she did not call out in any kind of highlighted way the fact that on the page, the poem is numbered in sections one and two. I don't think she read those numbered sections or indicated them in any way other than maybe with a pause or something. Um, but there is, a, on the page anyway, there is a section one for the, for the poem, which begins with the word honey and ends with um, what at a glance is probably the most conspicuous visually moment in the poem, uh, all caps, the all caps word stop that comes at the end of the first section. And then there is a a somewhat shorter second section that concludes the poem. Um, Anthony, is there some, as you look at the poem as a whole, sort of scan your eyes over the, um, over the, the extent of it, is there some easy or articulable way of describing the meaning of that structure? Like, um, you know, what is the relation of part one of this poem to part two of this poem? Or maybe another way to ask you to think about that would be to say, what is that all cap stop doing at the end of section one? And how does section two begin again? You know, so what do you think about structure here? It seems to me that the first section of the poem, it affects something like immediacy. I mean, the poem is artifice. The poem is reflection. I'm not saying that Jordan just wrote down what she was thinking as she was thinking it, but the effect of the first part to me is a kind of immediacy right down to that address. So that, um, and even if it's not, the, even if the first line is not read in, as address, the springtime terrorizing death by men by more than you or I can stop, and stop is in um, all caps. There is this sense that the that idea has run out. It's it started one thought that this is what's happening and it's going to keep happening. And the language of it is something that is raw that the rhythm of the lines, the repetition, the use of alliteration, especially of M's and D's, um, of near repetition, onward, outward, that there's a very much something headlong. The, and there's one, there are two lines as I, as I read it of iambic pentameter, uh, or yeah, two iambic pentameter lines. One is the third line of section one, to kill, to violate, pull down, destroy. Mm -hmm. um, which is maybe in what was Frost's term? The uh, loose iams. Yeah, all right. He said there's two kinds of English verse: strict iambic and loose iambic. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> what a jerk. Oh, Frost. <laughs> um, but then the second poem is the second section rather of the poem is that moment as if one has taken a breath and like the the order implied by that by an isolated line of iambic pentameter doesn't hold in the first section. The second is a later moment. It's the moment of mourning. 
Yeah, they give sleep it to us. Who, no, sorry. Sorry, I just said yeah. Please uh, read read that line for us. They sleep who know a regulated place. Ten syllables, stress at the end, without scanning the rest. That's iambic. Yeah, that's pretty iambic. Bump, 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 bump. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but it's they sleep who know mm. a regulated pace. So there's still a kind of distancing. Who are those it's, they, Anthony? I think it's the same one who the 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 same they as the people who murder in the opening opening stanza. So and 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 it and it strikes me that um you know interesting to get what does really feel like a line of iambic pentameter in a poem that is for the most part not in any kind of meter like that that in that line we get the description of a quote-unquote regulated place. In other words, there's something almost kind of mimetic happening in the, in the um, rhythm of the poem at that place. It's as though what's being described is like some kind of narcotic or well-behaved state in which one just gives in to the to the rhythms that one has inherited rather than breaks free of them or something, something like this. Um, yeah. They sleep who know a regulated place or pulse or tide or changing sky. Yeah. Say more about those, about that. They, um, I feel like I cut you off a moment ago and you were going to share another thought about who you thought that, that they was. Well, it's possible that it's the the people who murder, but it's also in that there's something particularly, I dare say, poetic or at least literary about it, that the they is really anyone. So because what this is doing, um, to be a little bit technical about it, it's almost Miltonic, that is like John Milton. Mm-hmm. It's switching around the order of the words um, in a mm-hmm. way that's self-consciously poetic. The way that one would ordinarily express the sentiment, I think, might be if you know a regulated place or in order to perceive this as a regulated place, you must be asleep. Mm-hmm. They sleep who know a regulated place place or pulse or tide or changing sky. That idea of order is a construct that is itself narcotic. Yes. And in that way, it's the perfect counter. It anticipates what would happen, the the neoconservative reclamation of King away from the King who warned about the triple evils of racism, militarism, and poverty, mm-hmm. and into whatever he has become for too many people. I have to remember this is being recorded and there's an anecdote that I can't share about how I've heard King being deployed, but okay, <laughs> beware of those who come bearing quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. is what I will say. Well, listen, I mean, I've heard people <laughs> cite Martin Luther King Jr.'s words in their arguments for why we shouldn't have affirmative action, say, right? So people yes. do all kinds of perverse things. To bring it back to the poem for a minute, it sounds to me as you've just described it, like now I'm really getting a kind of contrast between so the so again, for people who aren't looking at the poem, section two of the poem begins with that line, they sleep who know a regulated place. And that section of the poem is itself divided into two stanzas, or maybe that's not the right word, but little verse paragraphs. The The second of those two sections, of those two stanzas or verse paragraphs within the second half of this poem, begins with this line, we share an afternoon of mourning. So, um, you know, what I'm thinking, and I I tried to accentuate it as I just, uh, no pun intended, as I just uh, spoke the line right now that they do this, but we do that. You know, we do something else. really creating a kind of uh, a distinction that's being drawn between people who are able to sleep and people who share an afternoon of mourning. And, and, and yeah, 
Well, so you, you t- tell us about that, that, that second line, Anthony, that we share an afternoon of mourning. It's awake. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of implied pun. As you're, as you're talking about it, I think that's exactly right. The first I, I will, um, stanza of the second section describes this they who know a regulated place, um, who believe that the pulse, tides, changing skies move according to some universal stage direction. This is, in fact, I mean, it's a kind of, it's a, it's in conversation with one of people's other favorite lines from Martin Luther King Jr., which is that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. Right. And there's a way that one can hear that and believe that it's going to bend on its own, which right. couldn't be further from what King himself stood for and gave his life for. Um, but so there's this kind of sen- this sense of sleep. You believe that justice is inevitable. The, the white moderates that King called out in the letter from a Birmingham jail right. who believed, just go slow, it'll all work out over time. That's right. sleep. But then that kind of immediacy, this, the pun of we share an afternoon and morning, that is we wake, we hold awake. And, and just worth saying again for people who aren't looking, and Anthony's referring to this as a pun, but it may not be audible to you if you're not looking at the, at the text. Um, the word morning at the end of that, first line of the second stanza of the second section of the poem, that word morning, and we share an afternoon of morning. Morning there is with the you, right? So this is a, a reference to presumably, at least in the first place, to the grief, the collective grief upon the assassination of King or uh, whatever other kind of event you want to insert in its place. But of course, yeah, there is a kind of pun there on morning without the you, that is morning is the time of waking. Um, Which I think is necessary for that second line in between no next predictable, that sense of of grief mourning with the you, but also, uh, well, something new is dawning, but what's going to come next is entirely unknowable. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a freedom almost in that existential sense of we're just here in this void without guarantees. There's no, no, nothing that seems inevitable. Yeah. I I wonder, um, as, as, um, we near a conclusion to the, to this conversation, Anthony, um, you just referred to, uh, well, you just, um, called our attention to Jordan's reference to no next predictable, right? Um, this sort of um, chaotic or um, n- not scripted um, imagining of futurity. I wonder if you can um, give us some way to think about the very last lines of the poem, because if if I were to read on from there, she says, in between no next predictable except for wild reversal, hearse rehearsal, bleach the black long lunging, ritual of fright, insanity, and more, deplorable abortion, more and more. Um, those are, are very hard lines for me to... Um, to follow in a way or to make sense of. And, um, and maybe I'm, um, and, and, and I'm interested in the way they sound and I'm, and I'm, I, it's clear to me that there's some kind of play on words and sounds happening, for instance, in that phrase, reversal, hearse, rehearsal. There's some interesting play happening on the or sound in a deplorable abortion more and more. Um, what else do you think about as you hear the final lines of this poem, Anthony? I think here it's helpful to de-exceptionalize King and to put him back in the context of the 1960s and of what once upon a time was called the Black Freedom Movement. Mm. And there, think about just the many deaths that happened. One reason that cities blew up in 1968 after King's assassination is that before his assassination had been Megar Evers' assassination, had been Malcolm X's assassination, had been the murders of many 
civil rights workers and maimings, beatings on national television. And just the sense that, look, King, who was despised in his time, despite what people would have you believe now, seemed like kind of the last hope, Hmm. um, I think, for many people. And so the only next predictable is wild reversal, the kind of turning back of the so-called gains of the 60s. Hearse, that is the more funerals, more rehearsals, this kind of the sense of going through the motions without a kind of clear, um, a clear sense of where things, where this was all going to end up. So from there, it kind of just to skip down to those lines that you asked about, I think that this is still in that the only other thing that's predictable. The ritual fright of ins- the ritual of fright, insanity, and more deplorable abortion. Abortion, I think, there isn't referring to. I mean, abortions in the sense of terminating pregnancy had been happening. So, but I think that the reference there is calling back the word stop, and it's calling back the stop specifically in the sense of. Um, that feeling that what had been happening with the civil rights movement was being prematurely ended. It, it reminds me of the um, destroying the weekly freedom growing fruit, right? That kind of idea to go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. Yes. I, th- I think that there's no way to stop it, but there's no way to stop this artificial ending from happening. Mm-hmm. That, in other words, in the at the end of the first section, we talked about those lines, death by men, by more than you or I can stop. Those, those men, the ones destroying the weakly growing freedom, are going to keep doing that. And therefore, there will be more deplorable abortion, more and more. Mm. That there's just going to be this, this pattern of all of the leaders, how does Stevie Wonder put it? You killed all our leaders. Um, This is from the song, Big Brother. I think that that's what Jordan is is evoking. And it's really, a it's in memoriam, it's very much a poem of grief Hmm. and a poem of grief without, um, without the consolation of mourning. It's not the consolation of, yes, but a brighter day is dawning. Yes, but we'll have our freedom nonetheless. It it refuses that kind of um, gesture of optimism that I think most most of us would, without thinking much about it, turn to. When someone is suffering, oh, you'll feel better in time. Oh, Mm -hmm. don't worry. This is just saying, no, it's just going to keep being this bad, and there's Mm -hmm. nothing we can do about it, Mm -hmm. but share afternoons of mourning with one another. Oh, well, that's um, that's a beautiful um, place, I think, for us to draw to a conclusion, Anthony, except that um, it occurs to me we've heard the poem once in June Jordan's voice. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind um, closing us out today by reading the poem one more time in your own voice. I'd be happy to. In memoriam, Martin Luther King Jr., one. Honey, people, murder, mercy, USA, the milkman, turn to monsters, teach to kill, to violate, pull down, destroy, the weekly freedom growing fruit from being born, America. Tomorrow, yesterday, rip, rape, exacerbate, despoil, disfigure, crazy, running threat, the deadly thrall, appall, belief, dispel, the wildlife burn, the breast, the onward tongue, the outward hand, the form, the normal rainy riot, sunshine, shelter, wreck of darkness, derogate, delimit, blank, explode, deprive, assassinate, and batten up like bullets, fatten up the raving greed, reactivate a springtime, terrorizing death by men, by more than you or I can stop. Two. They sleep who know a regulated place or pulse or tide or changing sky according to some universal stage direction, obvious like shore-washed shells. 
We share an afternoon of mourning in between, no next predictable except for wild reversal, hearse, rehearsal, bleach, the black long lunging, ritual of fright, insanity, and more deplorable abortion, more and more. Well, Anthony Reed, um, thank you very much. It was my um, pleasure genuinely to share this afternoon of mourning with you. And um, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and for talking about poetry with me. What could be better than that? All right. Thanks, everyone. More soon. Bye now.